Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, and again, continuing the show solo to see where the road takes me. Again, on my show, I don't just discuss what I love about horror movies, even though I do. <laughs> I try to bring in the element of horror and history and how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am studying psychology, I also like to bring in the element of psychology and mental health and see how the horror movie reflects mental health in any way. So again, just a little something I want to say before I start. As my 50s month comes to an end and the fact that I featured movies I watched with my mother, I would like to just take a minute to talk about her. <laughs> my mother's name was Charlene, hence why my daughter's middle name is the same. She's Hamera Charlene. She was born in Oregon but raised in Inglewood, California, and she's the reason why I love horror movies. When she was little, she would go to the drive-in and watch scary movies with her father. And she would tell me stories of these drive-in adventures, how much she loved them, and how much she loved the movies she watched. As I've mentioned before, I saw my first horror movie when I was five with my older brothers and sisters, who are all way older than me. They're in their late 40s, early 50s. I'm, I'll be 39. <laughs> and it was Friday the 13th. But before that, I remember my mother reading me Stephen King books, telling me family scary stories, all true, and telling me horror movies as bedtime stories. I remember being so intrigued and fascinated by these stories and enjoying the rush of being scared. And I don't remember ever having a bad dream or a nightmare about them. I just remember enjoying them. After I saw my first horror movie, I wanted to see more. My mom would rent them for me and we would watch them together. After she would tell me one of these horror movie bedtime stories, she would say, and it's a movie. You want to watch it? And with excitement in my voice, I'd be like, yeah, I want to watch it. And she'd go rent it and we'd watch it downstairs in the living room together. I miss her every day and I wish she could see how far I've come as a mother with school, working on my bachelor's degree and the podcast. In fact, she probably would have been either my co-host or a regular guest on the show if she was still here. Anywho, I, I love you, Mom. You were my hero and my best friend, and I know you are Hamera's guardian angel, so please keep an eye out for her and keep her out of trouble because the Lord knows I won't be able to keep her out of trouble. So ending the month of June for the 1950s, I'm going to talk about 1956, The Bad Seed. Directed by Marvin Leroy, starring Gage Clark as Tasker, Jesse White as Emery, Joan Croydon as Miss Fern, William Hopper as Colonel Kenneth Penmark, Paul Fix as Richard Bravo, Henry Jones as Leroy, Evelyn Varden as Monica, Eileen Heckart as Miss Hortense Daigle, Patty McCormick as Rhoda Penmark, and Nancy Kelly as Christine Penmark. So the last couple of movies I talked about focused a lot on like reflecting on history. And this movie actually happened to be the opposite. And I was able to pick out more of the psychology and mental health aspects over how it reflected history. So for horror and history, I pretty much just got like the fear of children, the fear of having children, the fear of the past, the fear of like what your children can inherit from you, good or bad. Psychology and mental health is nature versus nurture, conduct disorder, manipulation, compulsive lying, deceitfulness, lack of empathy or emotion, psychopathy, aggression, and impulsiveness. 
Sorry if you hear my papers rustling. This movie was over two hours long and I took a lot of notes. So I'm trying to pinpoint like what I want to talk about and what I don't want to talk about. But I made sure to write everything down just in case. And I'm sorry about my voice. I don't know what I did, but like I'm hoarse and like just sounds rough. So I apologize for that. So one thing I found interesting is that this movie was actually nominated for an Oscar in four different categories. And horror doesn't usually make it into the Oscars. and it doesn't typically win, even though there have been some in the past. It was nominated. Um, it was up for Best Actress in a Leading Role, which was Nancy Kelly. Um, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, which was Eileen Heckart and Patty McCormick. And then Best Cinematography for Black and White, which was Harold Rawson. It also was nominated for, two people were nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, which was Patty McCormick and Eileen Heckart. And Eileen Heckart actually won the Golden Globe. So what is this movie about? What is this movie about? <laughs> so usually I try to tell this part or say this part in my own words, but I was having like a lot of trouble like explaining it or writing it out. And it just, everything I kept doing just was like, basically was giving the whole movie away. And I was like, all right, um, I don't want to do this. So I just looked on IMDb and got the plot summary from there. So that's actually what I'm going to read from is from IMDb. Christine Penmark seems to have it all, a loving home, a loving husband, and the most, quote, perfect daughter in the world. But since childhood, Christine has suffered from the most terrible reoccurring nightmare, and her, quote, perfect daughter's accomplishment includes lying, theft, and possibly much, much worse. Only Christine knows the truth about her daughter, and only Christine's father knows the truth of her nightmare. So that's pretty much what the movie is about. <laughs> So this one falls under the psychological horror subgenre. And this subgenre, I haven't had a chance to explain yet since I've gone solo. I know in um, past ones, I think I've talked about the psychological horror subgenre. So this is the kind of horror rooted in reality. It makes you think like, could this really happen? These movies are mind bending and sometimes can be hard to watch because they, they seem so realistic. They tend to shift their focus more on people, on humanity, on human beings, instead of focusing on like the supernatural, like ghosts or demons or monsters, like, you know, such as cryptids or Bigfoots or, you know, pumpkin head. Again, this is just generally speaking. So here's a little bit of what the psychological horror subgenre is, again, taken from my essay I wrote called The Thrill of Being Scared. This subgenre may feel the most realistic because it builds the horror by playing on people's fears, anxieties, and phobias. These movies are designed to make the viewer feel as if this could happen to them. In addition, a big plot point for these films are people going crazy due to situations like isolation or war. These movies tend to focus more on people over the supernatural or monsters. Again, sorry if you hear my papers rustling. I really do apologize. So the first thing I want to talk about is nature versus nurture. This whole movie is basically a case study on the whole nature versus nurture debate. How are people's behavior shaped? How are people born a certain way? Like, are they born a certain way? Are they created and influenced by their environment? And um, I looked up on Simply Psychology, which is one of the um, websites I reference to when I'm writing papers. And Simply Psychology states, Nature is what we think of as pre-wiring and is influenced by genetic inheritance and other biological factors. Nurture is generally taken as the influence of external factors after conception, you know, 
e.g. the product of exposure, life experiences, and learning on the individual. And there have been many studies done to kind of like determine which is right. You know, is it nature? Is it nurture? Some theorists lean all the way towards nature. Some lean all the way towards nurture. Some people are in the middle and there's so many different, you know, areas in between. One of the studies that was done was like adoption studies. And they wanted to see like how much of a person's personality and behaviors were similar to their birth parents as opposed to their adopted parents. So like what traits did they inherit from their birth parents and what traits did they develop from their adopted parents? So that was one study. It was adoption studies. Another study that was done for the nature versus nurture debate was a twin study. And basically they, you know, and this was done actually both on identical and fraternal twins. And again, they wanted to see like what the twins had in, you know, similarities between each other, you know, personality traits, behaviors, and like what they had different, you know, what was the difference between the two twins? So what do they have the same, you know, inherited genetics and what was different between the two environmental factors? So, you know, again, this is like believing that some personality traits and behaviors are influenced by outside factors. Some believe that it's genetically inherited. And this is something I've always enjoyed, which was the nature versus nurture debate, because I don't swing one way or the other. I'm kind of in the middle. I I actually do believe that we are born a certain way, like our temperament and specific personality traits, but that we're, we also develop traits that are influenced by our environment. And so you're born with specific traits that you cannot change, but there are other traits and behaviors learned through outside factors, if that makes any sense. I even wrote like a short paper on this debate by using serial killers as examples. <laughs> so I'm going to go over just two examples from that. So on one hand, you have Henry, Lu uh, Henry Lee Lucas, sorry, Henry Lee Lucas, who claimed to have killed around 3,000 people and he was the son of a prostitute. His mother would force him to watch her have sex with clients and would often cross-dress Henry and make him go out in public like that for like her own enjoyment. Both his parents were abusive alcoholics, and Henry had an incestuous relationship with his older half-brother, who introduced him to bestiality and animal torture. So, obviously, Henry Lee um, Lucas had a traumatic childhood filled with abuse, both physical and mental. So, to some, it's no wonder he became a serial killer, because most serial killers' behaviors can actually be traced back to childhood trauma. So, here we go. On the other hand, we have Dennis Radar, the BTK killer, bind, torture, kill, who claimed the lives of 10 people. He was a family man, married with children. Um, when he was younger, he joined the Boy Scouts and was part of the church uh, youth groups. When he was older, he joined the Air Force. Later on, he got married and became the congregation president at Christ Lutheran Church. So here's a man who did not suffer from a traumatic childhood. In fact, it was said that he was raised in a stable environment by loving parents. So what drove this man to kill? Was he just born bad? So this right here is like where we get the whole theory and storyline of the movie. Can someone just be born bad? Can someone raised in a stable environment and stable loving environment became, um, become a cold-hearted killer? And this movie just basically dives deep into this idea. So for this section, I'm kind of just going to go over like key scenes to kind of show you Christine's thought process, her road to discovering her daughter's like true nature. 
And, you know, you can kind of see where the nature versus nurture kind of fits in with this movie and how it's like the whole underlying theme of the movie. So in an early scene during the school picnic that Rhoda is attending, Christine is talking to her teacher, Miss Fern, and she says, now about Rhoda, naturally. Tell me, frankly, Miss Fern, is she always as perfect in everything as she was with her curtsy? Miss Fern says, she does everything extremely well, as you must know better than I. Christine then goes on to say, and as a person, does she fit in well at school? Like, is she popular with the other students? Miss Fern says, let me think, in what way, Miss Penmark? Christine continues, well, Rhoda's been, I don't quite know how to say it, but there's a mature quality about her that's disturbing in a child. And my husband and I thought that a school like yours, where you believe in discipline and the old-fashioned virtues, might, well, perhaps teach her how to be more of a child. So in this scene, we kind of see that Christine already has some questions regarding her child's behavior. She knows something's kind of off about her daughter. She's not like other children. She's acting more mature than her age. And this, you know, this worries her. She knows something. There's something about Rhoda and something not quite right with her all through this scene. So then later on, um, Monica, which is the landlord of the apartment building that the Penmarks live in, Emery, which is Monica's sister, and their friend Reggie are at Christine's apartment. And I, I actually don't know if they're having lunch or just hanging out or what, whatnot, but they're actually talking about psychology and Freud and murderers because Reggie writes articles and books about the subject. So Emery says, say... The gal that really took the prize was the one you wrote about in your first book of yours. You know, the one that pulled all those jobs and they couldn't convict her. And Reggie says, oh, you mean Bessie. Bessie Danker, the most amazing woman in all like, of homicide. She was beautiful. She had brains. She was ruthless. And she never used the same poison twice either. Her father, for example, died of rabies, supposedly contracted from a mad dog. A mad dog, sorry. Just happened all of his money went to Bessie. And Christine pipes up, did you say Bessie Danker? So we learn about the character Bessie Danker and how the name seems familiar to Christine, like she's heard it before, but she can't recall where. And I feel like this scene and that story sparks the memory of Christine's recurring dream and her questioning on whether or not she was adopted. And if this Bessie Danker has anything to do with Rhoda and her odd behaviors, what, um, you know, what does Bessie Danker have to do with Christine? What does Bessie Danker have to do with Rhoda? And like this scene kind of just gives her like the, the memory of her recurring nightmare, the memory of how she always thought she was adopted and now makes her really want to talk to her father and find out the truth about her. So then Reggie does come over at one point because, um, Christine is getting, you know, dinner prepared for her and her father. And she kind of questions Reggie and she says, tell me. Do children ever commit murders or is crime something that's learned gradually and grows as the criminal grows? So it's only adults that do really dreadful things. And Reggie pipes in, oh, yes, children often commit murders and quite clever, too. Like any other, quote, talents, children can show a murderous nature. Children are capable of murder, you know, and murderous tendencies at a very early age. And then Christine goes on to say, are criminal children a product of their environment? So here we have it like the nature versus nurture debate, like a clear talk, like they're clearly talking about the nature versus nurture debate. Are people shaped, you know, are criminals shaped by their environment? Are they born this way? You know, are they just a bad seed as um, Reggie had put it and that, you know, they can prevent, um, sorry, present a more convincing picture of virtue 
to normal folk to cover up their wicked ways. And then later on, like Christine even states, like, I'm afraid of what she may have inherited from me. So Christine kind of has figured out that Bessie Danker has to do with her in some way, but she doesn't understand like in what way she has to do with her. And she doesn't understand like how Rhoda was raised in such a caring, stable environment by loving parents could possibly be a murderer unless it's something, a trait, a behavior she inherited from Christine's side of the family. And then we finally get to the scene where Christine actually confronts her father about whether or not she was adopted because she's always felt this way. Something has always felt off about her. And then she actually talks about her recurring dream she's had. And sorry, this is a little bit long, but I feel like it's really important to the story. And Christine says, oh, daddy, I, I dreamed of a bedroom in a farmhouse in a countryside where there are orchards. And I share the room with my brother who is older than I am. And then one night, somebody isn't my mother. She comes to take care of him. And she's a lovely lady. She's beautiful like an angel. And then later, I guess my brother must have died because I'm alone in the room. And then one night, I'm terrified to be in that room another minute. And somehow, I get out of bed. It's moonlight. And I get out the window. And I drop to the ground below. And I hide myself in the deep weeds behind the first orchard. And then, I don't remember very much else except that towards morning, I'm... I'm thirsty, and I begin to eat the yellow pippins that fall from the trees, and then, when the first light comes up over the clouds, I can I can hear my mother's voice calling to me from a distance, and I don't answer her because I'm afraid. Now, is that a dream? Only a dream? So Christine's father does pipe in and admit that her birth name is Danker. He had found her when she was around two years old, and he and his wife adopted her. Bessie Danker, the serial murderer, is Christine's biological mother. And Christine was given everything, love, kindness. She was raised in a good home and she turned out just fine. But Rhoda, her daughter, who also was raised in a good home full of love and kindness, well, she must have been born bad because she's a killer. And she must have inherited it from her grandmother, Bessie Danker. The quote, bad scene gene seems to skip a generation. And then in the end of the movie, uh, Christine gives her daughter sleeping pills, claiming they're new vitamins, and then she shoots herself because she just can't deal with the fact that her daughter is a murderer and she can't bring herself to actually turn her in and she feels like this whole situation is her fault. But they both survive. The neighbors heard the gunshot and they get the two of them to the hospital. Rhoda is saved and Christine actually is in a coma. And then at the very end, Christine wakes from her coma and talks to her husband and then Rhoda sneaks out at night during this huge and rough thunderstorm and then heads to the wharf to fish something out of the water where she's struck by lightning and then killed. So that's the whole like idea of like nature versus nurture. You kind of see like that's like Christine's whole story is like she's trying to figure out why Rhoda is the way she is, why she has these certain personality traits and behaviors and how she can be like this when she's been raised in such a wonderful environment, stable environment, loving environment. Why is she like this? And she figures out that it's because of her grandmother, Bessie Danker, the serial murderer, who's Christine's biological mother. So now I'm going to go over um, Rhoda herself. And I'd like to kind of talk about her because I think... So I think what I'm going to do is just go over like a few scenes that show Rhoda's true nature, probably more than a few scenes to be quite honest, because there's a lot and show like her lack of empathy, her disregard of others and their feelings and kind of so on. 
And then I'm going to kind of go over the psychology of what I think she may be suffering from, kind of diagnose her in my own way. That way, after hearing these examples um, of her behavior, my terminology might make more sense. I don't know if that makes sense, but anyway, here I go. So towards the beginning, Monica, again, the landlady, the landlady is seen giving Rhoda a present and it's rhinestone sunglasses. And then later on, she actually gives her a necklace and explains that there's a garnet gem or a garnet crystal in it that needs to be replaced because Rhoda's birthstone is the turquoise, not the garnet. And then Rhoda looks at Monica and in a very sweet and polite voice, but kind of has like a demanding undertone to it. She asks for both the stones, not just the one. And her mother's even like, Rhoda? And then, so Monica goes on and explains why she bought her presents. And she says, that's one reason why I thought you should have some presents today. You wanted to win that penmanship medal very much, didn't you? And Rhoda says, it's the only gold medal Miss Fern gives. And it was really mine. Everybody knew I wrote the best hand and I should have had it or I should have won it. Sorry. So Rhoda goes on to even say, I just don't see how Claude Daigle got the medal. So she's obviously angry and upset that she did not win this penmanship medal. And this is kind of where everything starts is this penmanship medal that she feels she should have won. But Claude Daigle won, not her. And she obsesses over the fact that she lost and truly believes that she should have won. So at the school picnic again, Claude Daigle has drowned. Rhoda comes home on the bus early and her mother, uh, Christine, goes to her and is like, oh, darling. And Rhoda says, mother, we didn't really have our lunch because Claude Daigle was drowned. And Christine says, I know it was on the radio. And Rhoda goes on to say he was drowned. So then they were all rushing and calling and hurrying to see if they could make him alive again, but they couldn't. So they said the picnic was over and we had to go home. Can I have a peanut butter sandwich and milk? And her mother kind of is taken aback by this like action or like words of hers and says, I want you to try to get these pictures right out of your mind. I don't want you to be worried or frightened one little bit. These things happen to us sometimes. And when they do, we simply accept them. And Rhoda says, oh, but I thought it was exciting. Can I have a peanut butter sandwich now? And then she even says at one point, like, I don't feel anything at all. So she's showing like no emotion or any feelings towards the fact that a boy from her class has actually died, like no sympathy, no empathy for this tragedy. She's just going on with her life like, hey, I want a peanut butter sandwich and milk, mom. Like, what's the problem? And then Rhoda um, comes into the house at one point and says, what did you want to see me about, mother? And Christine presents the penmanship medal she found in Rhoda's treasure box and asks Rhoda for the truth. You know, what happened? Why does she have the medal? And Rhoda tries to change the subject, redirect her mother's attention, distract her. She even makes up a story about how her and Claudega were playing in a game and that's how she got the medal and that she doesn't see the problem with her having the medal since Claudega's dead. And she says, Rhoda says, but it was silly to want to bury the medal pinned on Claude's coat. Claude was dead. He wouldn't know it. If, you know, he wouldn't know if he had the medal pinned on him or not. <laughs> Again, like she doesn't seem to care nor understand why it's important for the family to have Claude buried with his medal, his penmanship medal. She wants the medal. Claude's dead. So she feels like it's hers now. So there's a really good scene. It's kind of like a turning point where like Christine kind of sees the truth of who Rhoda really is. And Christine catches Rhoda sneaking out of her room with a brown paper bag until and she kind of like stops her and says, what's in the bag? And Christine tries to take the bag from Rhoda and they kind of fight and tussle and the bag is thrown into the next room and Rhoda's tap shoes fall out. 
And Christine picks him up and says, you hit him with the shoes, didn't you? You hit him with your shoes. That's how he got those half moon marks on his forehead and on his hands. Answer me, Rhoda, answer me. And Rhoda says, I hit him with the shoes. I had to hit him with the shoes. What else could I do? And Christine says, but do you realize that you murdered him? And then Rhoda continues, but it was his fault. If he gave me the medal like I told him to, I wouldn't have hit him. He wouldn't give me the medal like I told him to, that's all. So then he ran away from me and hid on the wharf. But I found him there, and I told him that I'd hit him with my shoe if he didn't give me the medal. But he shook his head and said no, so I hit him the first time. Then he took off the medal and gave it to me. And Christine says, well, then what happened? And Rhoda continues, well, he tried to run away from me, so I hit him with my shoe again. But he kept on crying and making a noise, and I was afraid someone would hear him. So I kept on hitting him, mother. I hit him harder that time, and he fell in the water. And Christine kind of sits back and is, sits down and is taken aback and says, oh, my God, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then Rhoda goes on and explains that Claude tried to climb back onto the wharf after he fell in the water, but Rhoda hit him on the back of the hands with her shoes because Claude kept saying he was going to tell on her and Rhoda didn't want to get caught. So Rhoda here clearly, well, she clearly has some psychological disorder. She's suffering some kind of mental health issues. And this scene shows like her thought process behind her behavior. She believes that for one, it's Claude's fault that she killed him. She takes no responsibility for her actions. You know, if Claude had just gave her the medal and didn't say he would tell on her, he would still be alive is basically how Rhoda thinks. Like to her, her actions are justified. It just shows that she has like no empathy, like no emotions. She's basically emotionless except for the emotion of anger. And then Rhoda sees, so again, sorry, there's another scene. Rhoda sees the ice cream truck and asks her mother if she could have a popsicle. Christine says, yes, take some money from my purse. Rhoda takes some money and then tries to sneak out some matches. And Christine sees it, tells Rhoda to put the matches back, but Rhoda still, still kind of takes like two or three without her mom seeing her. And when Rhoda comes back in from, you know, the ice cream truck with her popsicle, there's smoke. Like soon after that, they see smoke outside and you hear the handyman Leroy like screaming and yelling. And pretty much at this point, it's obvious to Christine that Rhoda set Leroy on fire. And this is actually because he knew the truth. So there was a there was three encounters that I remember um, Rhoda had with Leroy that kind of um, worked its way and progressed to her killing him. And the first one was right after Claude Daigle drowned, Rhoda decides she's just going to go roller skating. And Leroy states, how come you go skating and enjoying yourself when your poor little schoolmate's still damp from drowning in the bay, huh? Looks to me like you'd be staying home crying your eyes out. Either that or being in church, burning a candle in a blue cup. You ask me, and I say, you don't even feel sorry about what happened to that poor little boy. And Rhoda pipes up, why should I feel sorry? It was Claude Daigle got drowned, not me. The second time that she has an encounter with Leroy, Rhoda's using her new tea set. And Leroy comes over to her and explains how he thinks she killed Claude by beating him with a stick. She took the metal and then rolled his body off the wharf and then washed the blood off the stick. And Rhoda says, I think you're a very silly man. And Leroy states, it's you who's silly thinking you can wash off blood, but you can't. And Rhoda kind of stops and is like, why can't you wash off blood? And Leroy says, because you can't. And the police know it. You can wash and wash, but there's always some left. Everybody knows that. I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them to start looking for that stick in the woods. And Leroy kind of goes on and is teasing her and explains that they have these 
dogs called like stick bloodhounds who can um like sniff out blood on anything if it's been washed off. So here he's like fooled Rhoda the second time and like he's fooled her in like second guessing herself. So now she thinks, you know, the evidence that she thought she got rid of is still out there. So now she's like worried and wondering and it's kind of like, oh, what do I do? And then the last encounter is kind of what sets Rhoda off and why she decides she has to kill Leroy to, you know, keep his mouth shut. And Leroy, again, confronts Rhoda and kind of pokes fun at her about the stick bloodhounds. And Rhoda's like, there's no such thing. I figured out there's no such thing. And they talk about her shoes, which she, the tap shoes I mentioned earlier, which she threw down the, into the incinerator to burn, um, you know, burn the evidence. And Leroy says they didn't burn all the way and that he actually has them. And Rhoda stands up and is angry and demands that Leroy give her back her shoes. Leroy says no. She demands it again. Leroy admits he was just joking and he doesn't know anything about shoes or her shoes. And Rhoda keeps advancing him, demanding from these shoes. She wants her shoes back. And Leroy keeps like saying, like, I don't have your shoes. And she's like, give them back to me. And then finally, like Leroy realizes that Rhoda is a killer and that he she killed Claude Daigle and he even states, I really do believe you killed that boy before I was only fooling. So this is why Rhoda had to kill him, you know, dispose of him is because he knew too much and he actually threatened her. The shoes are the murder weapon and they needed to be burned so that there would be no evidence against her. Um, you know, Rhoda has thought this through in a sense of like how not to get caught. You know, she, she did kill Claude in like a heat of the moment, you know, sense but she's still like calculated and methodically thought through like how to get rid of the evidence and how not to get caught and to like keep convincing people that she's this polite, perfect child. Because like in reality, if you really think about it, who would believe, you know, that an eight year old child could really be a cold hearted killer? So I was watching this and thinking like, what would my diagnosis of Rhoda be? And I said, Rhoda is clearly a psychopath, not a sociopath who suffers from conduct disorder. So first, like, what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Like, why am I saying psychopath and not saying she's a sociopath? And from another website that I usually refer back to from when I'm researching papers and stuff is very well mined. And um, this website stated, psychopaths are classified as people with little or no conscience. Sociopaths do have a limited, albeit weak, ability to feel empathy or remorse. A sociopath make it clear they do not care how others feel, behave in hot-headed and impulsive ways, prone to fits of anger and rage, recognize what they are doing but rationalize their behavior, cannot maintain a regular work or family life, can form emotional attachments but it is difficult. A psychopath pretend to care, display cold-hearted behavior, fail to recognize other people's distress, have relationships that are shallow and fake, maintain a normal life as a cover for criminal activity, fail to form genuine emotional attachments and may love people in their own way. So I say Rhoda is a psychopath because it's obvious she has no conscience and she shows absolutely no remorse for the crime she's committed. She shows no empathy or sympathy towards the people she's hurt. And she's very good at putting on this like facade of the polite child and acts like she cares, but she really doesn't like her outside appearance and behaviors is completely an act of like her true murderous nature. So I also said conduct disorder, you know, a psychopath with conduct disorder. And this disorder is basically considered the childhood version of antisocial personality disorder, 
So a lot of times when people think of like the term psychopath and sociopath, they it's actually, how do I explain this? Okay, so these are not actually mental health disorders that can be diagnosed, but are symptom characteristics of antisocial personality disorder. Like you can be a sociopath or sociopath suffering from antipersonal personality disorder, but not everyone who has antisocial personality disorder is a psychopath or sociopath, if that makes sense. They can be um, characteristics of the disorder, but not everyone with the disorder is a psychopath or sociopath. So conduct disorder, um, again, is considered the childhood version of antisocial personality disorder and has many of the same characteristics of antisocial personality disorder. And it's typically diagnosed in a child before the age of 15. So what's conduct disorder? And I took this um, definition from my abnormal psychology textbook. This disorder involves repetitive and persistent violations of rules, socially appropriate norms, and the rights of others, often taking the form of aggression, damage to property, deceitfulness and theft, and serious rule violations. And in my textbook, they actually have like the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for conduct disorder. And I was like reading through them to see like which ones Rhoda falls under. So under aggression to people and animals, she often bullies, threatens, or intimidates others. Um, has used a weapon that can cause serious physical harm to others, such as a bat, a brick, broken bottle, knife, gun, etc. In Rhoda's case, a shoe. Has been physically cruel to people. Under destruction of property. Has deliberately engaged in fire setting with the intention of causing serious damage. Under deceitfulness or theft. Often lies to obtain goods or favors or to avoid obligation. Example, or in other words, cons others. So in order to properly diagnose someone with conduct disorder, quote, individuals must show at least one symptom characteristic of conduct disorder before the age of 10. Again, this is from my abnormal psychology textbook. Rhoda's eight and has ticked off um, five out of the 15 symptom characteristics of conduct disorder. <laughs> so I feel like if she had not died at the end, I do believe this conduct disorder of hers would have progressed to antisocial personality disorder. And again, to be diagnosed with um, antisocial personality disorder, one has to have been diagnosed or shown um, symptoms of conduct disorder before the age of 15. But again, not every child who has conduct disorder will develop antisocial personality disorder. But I do believe that because Rhoda is a psychopath and that she is suffering from conduct disorder and that this um, behavior and trait of hers was inherited, you know, by her grandmother, I do believe she would have developed antisocial personality disorder and continued her murderous ways into adulthood. So since I've kind of been rambling on for a while and I really didn't want to go over my normal time, but I kind of have, I'm just going to read some of the reviews because, you know, I love my reviews, but not really dive deep into the details or explain too much about them. I'm just going to let you hopefully like watch the movie yourself and see if you can pick up on some of these reviews and so on. So medium.com, the story rebuked the idea that nurture was the key to understanding criminal behavior, arguing that some kids are just born bad because while Rhoda comes from a loving home, the girl is secretly even unbeknownst to her, the descendant of a serial killer. iHorror.com, the film digs deep into the psychology of nature versus nurture and whether madness or the desire to commit heinous crimes can actually be passed down, quote, in the blood from one generation to the next. And then addicted to horror movies. Now they're talking about Eileen Heckart's character, who is Mrs. Daigle. 
Claude Daigle's The Boy Who Drowns Mother. Drunk, she visits the Penmarks because she's sure Rhoda knows something about her son's death that she's not telling. Her performance is heartbreaking. So much pain and anger and, above all, overflowing with love for Claude. In comparison, Christine's politeness seems almost as shallow as Rhoda's. You can see where Rhoda gets it from. So I just want to say really quickly that I don't agree with this last line. I do not believe that Christine acts shallow at all. I believe she generally feels bad for Miss Daigle and the fact that Miss Daigle has lost her only child. She even tries to comfort the woman when she could have just kicked her out because the woman literally barges into her house drunk and she still lets her in and comforts her and talks to her and lets Miss Daigle rant on. And Eileen um, Hecker as Miss Daigle was just absolutely amazing. Like her performance is flawless and you just really felt sympathy for the character. And I'm not going to lie. There were scenes where I was like tearing up when she talked about her son and what she's going through and everything. It was just amazing. And I can see why she won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. I really believe she should have won the Oscar, to be honest. Her performance is just phenomenal. And if you're going to see this movie, just at least watch, if you don't really want to see this movie, watch it for at least her performance because in a over two hour movie, she's maybe on screen for 15 minutes and she is like the best part of the movie. Like she really is the heart and soul of the movie in a way, if that makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> so overall, um, this movie is a psychological horror that presents its story in a realistic manner and dives deep into the whole debate of nature versus nurture. Can evil be hereditary? Can it be passed down to your child? Can it skip a generation? Can someone just be born bad? Can someone who was raised by loving parents in a stable environment still commit horrendous crimes? This movie is a frightening and this movie is frightening and really makes you think, could this happen to me? Could my child be evil? And Patty McCormick, who played Rhoda, is fantastic and so believable as this little girl who presents herself as this wonderful, perfect child but who hides the truth that she is really a bloodthirsty murderer who will harm or kill anyone who gets in the way of her getting what she wants. She's ruthless. There isn't really any psychological metaphors or undertones in this movie because the movie is just one psychological case study about a child who seems to be a bad seed, despite being raised in a caring and stable environment by two loving and affectionate parents who just think the world of their daughter. This movie is a classic, and worth the watch because of how scary and you know how scary the premise is it's it's a good movie you really should watch it. it is long it's a little over two hours but it's really worth the watch so i'm gonna wrap it up for today thank you for joining me here on sinful sarah's horror menagerie again i'm your host sarah sin thank you for sticking around while i continue my show solo and i ramble on and on <laughs> hope you enjoyed the show again thank you for listening and I just want to remind everybody out there that there's a horror movie for everybody to enjoy. So thank you. <laughs>